Hello and welcome. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest today is Mr Julian Archer. Julian is the author of the book, Help, I've Been Blessed. It's subtitled, How to Stop God's Blessings from Becoming Curses. Julian is the founder of Faith Versus Finance, a global ministry working with affluent Christians who seek to be financially secure without becoming spiritually bankrupt. Julian, his wife Melinda, and their two teenage sons, Ethan and Jaith, live in South Queensland. My conversation with Julian today will centre on faith and money issues. In the second part of the program, I'll be talking with Julian about his early life and experiences. Welcome, Julian. Thanks very much, Barry. It's lovely to have you today. I look forward to the conversation very much. But before we talk about your book and ministry, tell me about your experience of the Queensland floods in January 2011. Yeah, I'm glad you said floods plural because uh, we had quite a few. <laughs> About every week or two, we just had it was just flood after flood after flood. And uh, the, we live in a beautiful corner of a creek. It's actually a horseshoe bend of a creek, and the house is uh, right in that horseshoe. And uh, we watched this water come higher and higher each flood. And then on one day, we were watching that radar, watching the clouds, the rain come across. And I said to my wife, this is it, we're getting wet this time. <laughs> and sure enough, the creek did come up, and that was actually the, the one that hit the news as well, you know, when people lost their lives, and uh, it, was, it was quite tragic. So where were you living? We're in a place called Flagstone Creek, mm-hmm. uh, which is just down the range from Toowoomba, on the Brisbane side of Toowoomba. Okay. Yeah. So you would have copped pretty much the full force of those floods. Yeah, in, although in, in the area, in the area, yeah, a couple of valleys north of us is where there was, you know, a lot of lot of loss of life and a, a lot of damage. Um, but where we were, the uh, the waters came up and up and up. We had fortunately because it was the it, it was actually the fourth flood in three weeks, and we had moved a lot of furniture and things out of the house and lifted things up, and so uh, it was a blessing to have been had all those warnings because it did actually come through the house and uh, and gave the house a good wash. <laughs> <laughs> a good wash. How, how deep was the water through your place? Well, you know, it's one of those sort of miracle stories because the water outside the house, washing across the front of the house, was a metre deep. Mm-hmm. And it was full of logs and cars and sheds and uh, rocks and all sorts of things. We have a lot of glass along that side of our house. Uh, but the water inside the house, nowhere did it get any deeper than about two or three centimetres. Okay. It was just phenomenal that that glass didn't break and... Yeah, just. Did you get any structural damage to your house? Uh, we got the garage door was pushed in, and we did the garage filled up to about a meter deep. Uh, but it's all on the same level, the house. So you know, it was it was just a miracle that that didn't come through the house. But uh, structural damage, interesting question, because the there were these big rocks and things rolling through the front yard in this meter deep water that was just roaring past. And when the flood had gone down, these big glass windows have got aluminium framing. And there were dints on the aluminium frames where logs and rocks and things had hit hard and, and, you know, pushed entire window frames in and that sort of thing. But nothing had hit the glass. (laughs) And if anything had hit the glass, it would be a different story, I can tell you. Yeah. What was the impact on your family? We know that uh, it was pretty devastating, Mm. very devastating flies. But what was the impact on your family? Yeah, look, we... We try to t- take a pretty positive view of things, and, and we believe that everything has a reason, you know, that, that things happen for a reason. And uh, for us, we were new to the area. The house was brand new. It was four, four months old we'd been in, and in that long. And uh, then this flood came through and, and just washed everything. And it was amazing to see the community. Uh, it was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon that, that it was at its peak. And by about 5 or 6 that afternoon... There were people from all around the community in the house, and I was walking into rooms 
watching watching people mop and clean up and all the rest. And I'd never seen them in my life because we were new to the area. And these people were just all there helping out. And I sort of had to walk in and say, hi, what's your name? Uh, and they'd give me their name. I said, well, my name's Julian. And hey, thanks very much because this is my house. <laughs> and that's how we got, we got to meet the entire community because they all just came around to give a hand. Mm. And uh, it, was, it was really good. So f- as far as the family goes, we really, we really saw the positives out of it because it's, uh, to us, it's God's house. If, if he needed to wash it, he washes it. You know? <laughs> what was the lingering impact on the community of those, of those floods? Yeah, a lot of. Uh, I, I think it. I think it pulled everybody together, and and I, th- I think that's a, a fairly common thing that occurs, whether it be bushfires or floods or earthquakes or whatever. Communities come together. That's when you start to see the human spirit really pulling together. You know, you can go for years bickering over politics and religion and you know whatever the issues are, but when tragedy hits, uh, that just seems to disappear. It's, uh, yeah, so it was it, it was actually beautiful in 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 the in the suffering and things that occurred. It pulled everyone together. But but having said that, you know, we were fortunate; we didn't lose any lives. But other other families did lose lose family members. Yeah, that's yeah. the that's a great tragedy, isn't it? Yeah, it seems that um, at times like that, people reevaluate what they're on about mm. and what's important in their lives. And I guess this this is an important starting point for our conversation today about money and and finances and so forth. But tell me about your motivation for writing the book, Help I've Been Blessed. Normally most people would think they didn't need help after they've been blessed. Tell me about the book and your motivation for it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a long journey. I've, I've been in business uh, with my family uh, and my parents for a, a number of years and those businesses were very successful. Uh, we, you know, we happened to run some businesses that people liked the, they liked the products and, uh, and that led to a, a lot of blessings uh, I guess you'd say material blessings uh, through the profits of those businesses. And we found, uh, more so myself, uh, but found that the more that we were blessed materially, the more difficult it was to maintain our spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there just seemed to be this seesaw where as our, I guess you say, affluence went up, our need for God went down. Uh, now that's not not true, but it, but it, you know if God gives you everything you need, you're no longer going to be on your knees every morning saying, "Lord, please give me my next meal." And so when you're living in an affluent society like Australia, uh, there is a tendency for people to forget God. And so the book itself, uh, I got to a point where I was I was I hadn't been a Christian all my life, but I since becoming a Christian. It had really changed my life, and it, and it just—I uh, mean, that's a whole other topic. But it, but but at, at the deepest heart level, it was just a wonderful thing that had come into my life, and I didn't want to lose that as as the affluence rose. And so I, I sat down to try and nut this out and say, "What's this all about, Lord? How, how can I be financially secure?" without becoming spiritually bankrupt. So this book has come out of your own personal experience. Very much so. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit uh, a little bit down the track. But tell me about faith versus finance. Why a global ministry? Yeah, uh, it didn't sort of start off as a global ministry, but I said to God, Lord, I'll, I'll go through any door that you open. Uh, I didn't realize he had so many doors. <laughs> so uh, it's only been running for a short period, but... I've been out in PNG and the Solomons in the US. Uh, I've got trips to Vietnam coming up, another one back to PNG, different parts of the world. So the Lord has opened up different places to go and minister to people who are struggling to maintain their relationship with God uh, during times of, of blessing. 
So what's involved with faith versus finance? What's involved? What services do you offer? Look, a lot of it is uh, running seminars and workshops uh, in community groups, uh, in churches, different places where people want want to discuss this. Uh, In a couple of weeks, I'll be in a a truck yard up in Brisbane, uh, standing on a couple of old pallets, and there'll be a whole heap of blokes there around who uh, they're looking for spiritual things. And uh, so it'll be a bit of a speaker's corner thing, and they'll all be sitting around there and talking about life and bloke, blokey things and all the rest, and I'll just be sharing my journey uh, with those guys. So it can vary from that sort of environment through to, you know, your bigger churches and, and that sort of thing. So tell me about the impact that it's having. Yeah, it's uh, we get a lot of wonderful feedback, even just this last weekend, um, you know, running some, some workshops. People come up and, and share the impact that it's had on their lives, even just over a short period, uh, or if they've read the book. And uh, you know, I had a guy come up to me recently and say, I had a, uh, a flight booked. I've already booked my flight to another city to buy a helicopter next week. Uh, but from what I've heard and what you've been sharing with me, I realise there's better uses for that money. He was going to buy that helicopter as a bit of a, you know, thing, thing for himself and, and a, bit of, a bit of fun and, and you know, a bit of prestige, I guess. Uh, but he realised, no, there's, there's greater needs in the world. So from that point of view, it's fantastic. But for me... In addition to that, I love it when people come to me and say, "Julian, you, you've taken me back to God. You've, you've, you know, you've got me back on my knees," and that's that's what I'm passionate about. Now, the book is very self-revealing. Lots of personal stories, yeah. anecdotes, experiences. Yeah. Why so self-revealing? Well, when I set out to write, write it, it wasn't a book. <laughs> it was it was very much a personal journal because I just wanted to sort out this faith versus finance battle, this the impact of affluence on spirituality in my life. And so I went back through it and just recorded all my all my stories and my my journey and my my challenges and my wins and victories and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and then as I was writing that, I thought I should put this in a format that my boys can read so that they don't make the same mistakes that Dad made. I've got two teenage boys. And, uh, and in the process of that, putting into a format for them, I just felt convicted that it was uh, to go into a book form. However, I, uh, I resisted. And for two years I sat on it and I was saying, no, it's too personal. I can't put this out in the public space. This is, is too personal. But finally, it, it's out there. Yeah. <laughs> Most of us find that we can be self-revealing to an extent, but when it gets really personal, it becomes difficult to do. Yeah. How did you uh, how did you manage that process? How did you finally decide to be so self-revealing? Was it just the the issues um, that you felt were so important that you needed to talk about talk through your own experience? Yeah, I I think I got to a point in life where I realised that a lot of my learning was head to head. You know, mm-hmm. it was information. It was sharing of information. Yes. And whilst that can get you places in life, I began to realise that it's actually heart to heart that changes a person and that really helps a person rather than just head knowledge. Yeah. So was writing the book enjoyable? It was. It only, it only took about 10 weeks and uh, it, just, it just flowed uh, out it came. It took longer than that to sort of go through the editing process and then, of course, I sat on it for two years because I didn't want it, want it out there. But it was, it was really enjoyable um, to, to look back and just see how God had led in my life through thick and thin. And, you know, not just blessings, 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 but struggles and challenges and different things that that board or other aspects of my life, it was just great to see God's hand. Mm. Who's influenced your views the most in the book? 
I mean, she, I, I noticed that you've got quite a number of different people that you're referencing. Yeah. Yeah. Who's influenced your thinking the most? Look, I, I think it's generally uh, uh, other other authors. It's uh, I guess I'm a learner who who also learns by reading, and so uh, obviously the Bible. You know, the, the guys who wrote that, uh, you know, phenomenal truths that I needed in my life. Uh, uh, a lady called Ellen White, who is one of the most uh, I think she's the most translated female author on the planet, something like 170 different languages <laughs> her books have gone into. Uh, and then a guy called John Wesley, who was a founder of the Methodist Church. Uh, those, those three sources, I think, have probably had the greatest impact uh, on, on my life. Mm. Why are these issues so important? And what's the basic message of the book? What are you actually, yeah. what are you actually saying to us in the book? And why are these issues so important? Yeah, look, if they're... The Gallup polls, m- many people would have heard of that. It's like a global research institute. They do a lot of surveys. Uh, it has done some studies on income levels and interest in religion. Uh, and they found that if a and, – and they, they've done these studies in like you know, 200 countries. And when they collated all the study data, they found that if a person's income is low, then their interest in religion and spirituality is high. Whereas if their income goes above about $25,000 a year, okay, so that's not, that's not a lot of money. Uh, but by the time they get to there, only about half of those people are still interested in religion. And once it goes higher than that, it gets less and less. And so, uh, and when we compare that with data from groups like Credit Suisse who study uh, wealth worldwide, uh, and we find that the richest countries in the world, most people, by far the majority of people in affluent nations have no interest in religion and spirituality. And so countries like Norway, Sweden, Australia, Switzerland, Iceland, Denmark, in these nations, they're, they're purely secular nations uh, because by far the majority, up to 90%, in Sweden, 90% of people, if you ask them if religion plays an important part of their everyday life, they say, no, it doesn't. And yet they're right up there in the top 10 richest adults in the world. Tease this relationship out a little bit. Why is that? Look, in, in a nutshell, uh, we get to a point where we, don't think, where we think we don't need God uh, because we, we're no longer relying on him on a daily basis, whereas people in the poorer countries who have low income levels, they're relying on, on God or their God's you know, religion every day. Uh, and so when you ask the survey questions in those countries, over 90% are saying yes. Uh, so there's, there's, it's like a seesaw. As affluence goes up, spirituality or interest in religion goes down. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way, but in by far the majority of cases it is. My own brother, who lives in Canada, works in a company, a consultancy, which goes in and tries to sort out messes in Christian families, particularly affluent Christian families, okay. where the pursuit of business success might have led to alienation within the family, alienation from kids and so forth, to go into those families and to do business plans, succession plans, and uh, philanthropic plans to try to sort out the messes that the additional affluence has caused within, yeah. the, within the family. Yeah. So I can see that that's obviously an issue. In, in Western societies. I don't imagine there'll be too many consultancies like that in the poorer countries. No, that's right. And, but, you know, it's a crazy thing. People say, why would affluence, why, why would living in a nice nation affect us so negatively? You know, I, I was down in Sydney here a couple of months ago and uh, I missed a flight. 
and I had to wait in the the waiting lounge there for the for the next flight. And ABC News was on, and I had just realised uh, I I'd just come across the latest data about this seesaw, you know, of faith and finance, and one going up and the other going down. And I had found in the Credit Suisse research that Australian adults are the second richest adults in the world. And that sort of surprised me because I'm an Australian adult. And I thought, man, are we really, you know, is that, is that really us? Uh, and Switzerland was at number one. That was probably no real surprise. Uh, but then I was watching this ABC News and they were giving a report on antidepressant consumption around the world. The second highest consumers of antidepressants in the world, us, Australia. And it's like... That just doesn't make sense. Why is it that when we're so blessed with so many things around us that we're having to pop pills to try and stay happy or to try and not be sad? It's just, you know, it's one of those crazy things. So this issue is, is a serious issue for, is. for Christianity, certainly in the West, Yeah, from what yeah. you're saying. How do we find the balance? How do we strike that balance between affluence and spirituality? Yeah, look, from a, from a Christian point of view, the seesaw comes into effect again, and it's very simply, as our affluence goes up, our knees must go down. And that's, that's the secret. We've got to be on our knees more, staying close to God, maintaining that relationship with God, because it's not going to be a natural thing for us to be crying out to God when he's given us so much that we don't really need to cry out to anyone. Now, there's a text in the Bible that we should discuss briefly, and this is First uh, Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. Yeah. And it says, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So we see here that it's not just the money that's the issue, it's the love of the money, mm. because we can do good with money. Yeah. Money in itself is not bad. That's right. So... What's the issue here? Is, is the text telling us, in essence, that it's the love of money that's the problem? Yeah. I, look, I found in my, in my personal life, uh, which is illustrated on the front cover of my book, uh, where that I filled my heart up with the money or with the blessings or, or the material things that I was surrounded with. Mm -hmm. And I, was, I became more interested in the gifts than in the giver of the gifts in God. Uh, and I became, to, I, I started to store up my treasures, you know, here on earth, whether that be building company structures or, or building investment portfolios or, or whatever it was. Uh, and they, you know, we think we own stuff. And I, I, I used to think, oh, I own a lot of stuff. But then I came to a point in life where I realized I don't own, my, own it. It owns me. The more stuff I had, the more time it took to care for it, worry about it, insure it, you know, all these different things. And, and I ended up being owned by all this stuff. Mm. Uh, so it's it's just interesting that the way we look at life is often directly opposite to how it really is and how it should be. Now I'd like to talk with you about how we how we actually find that balance um, in, in a very practical way. You've talked mm. about knees going down as our affluence goes up, um, but I'd like to take you back to your journey and ask you to tell us your journey in a little detail. Yeah. And then we might come at these issues from your own personal experience. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you just mentioned that, that text out of 1 Timothy 6, and it's talking about the love of money, the root of all evil. If we go over a few more verses, we actually see one of the solutions. We see one of the antidotes or the cures for what, what we might call affluenza. You know, we've got, we've got this bad case of affluence. <laughs> I've got to take something for it. And, and that cure is given a few verses on where the author says, 
for those who are blessed, tell them they've got to share it around. They've got to give it away. And you find that as you give, it starts to cure the, the selfishness. Because you, you're blessed when you give. You know, it's, if you give something and you do it personally and, and right there, you, you, you get this real feeling of, hey, that felt good. That was a real blessing. I'd like to do that again. And so that's, that's one of the, the cures uh, that, that we found. It's not, it's not the entire solution, but, but I found in my personal life that, that giving really helped to cure some of that selfishness. So take us right back to the, day when you, the days when you perhaps um – didn't have the sort of success, the financial success, and then take us through the impact of that financial success on your own on your own life, in a little more detail, and then tell us how you finally came to this crisis, this crisis of understanding that things were starting to own you, mm. um, that it was impacting your life, perhaps impacting your family, in, in negative ways. What were some of the signs that you could see that it was having an impact on you mm. in a negative way? Yeah, look. Uh, the businesses grew far more rapidly than we ever expected. Uh, we, you know, the, the last business that we had, the most recent one, it was growing 70% every year, compound, 70% on 70%, 70%, year after year after year. And it was a real, uh, a real, what, what do they say? If you've got the tiger by the, by the tail or you, if, you got, if you're holding the tiger by the ears, you can't hang on, you can't let go. <laughs> you know? And so my entire life began to focus around this business and 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 which of course was the source of the affluence um but it was more about being distracted so it doesn't have to be people don't have to be uh, doing really well in business to have the same struggles that I was going through it's the distractions of life that kept me away from or, or took me away from my relationship with god yeah and then of course going from there uh, it, it just got busier and busier and busier. And the whole time I was fighting it, my, you know, f- fighting to hold on to my relationship with God, but I seemed to be losing ground uh, because he, he kept blessing me more and more. And, you know, I thank, I thank God that we've got a gracious, generous, but very patient God. <laughs> that he's, you know, he, he, he cares for us uh, as a really good parent would. Can you remember the time when you, you felt, when you really understood what was going on? And decided to do something about it? it? No, it was more gradual. It was more just over time. It just got I, – I, I was fighting it more and more and more. Uh, we, we got to a point – there had been a series of businesses. Uh, my, my parents were serial entrepreneurs. Uh, so by the – sorry, by the time we sold the last business, it was the 12th one. And, uh, and so it was sort of a progressive thing. Um, but when, I, when we sold that last business – I actually had the time to sit down and look back and go, what, did, what went wrong, Julian? And that's where, that's where the book came out of, mm. yeah. Did you see any impact on your family? Look, what what about your parents too? Yeah, we, we were really blessed from a family point of view. Uh, family businesses don't always work so well, as you mentioned, you know, with your brother doing consultancy to them. Uh, but we just worked really well, mum, dad and myself, as, as threefold management. Um, that worked out. In my own personal family, my wife and children, uh, I would have liked to have spent more time with them, uh, and I'm doing that now as, as my boys are older. Uh, but we were just we were really blessed from a, from a family point, relational point of view. We actually had really good relationships right through the whole thing, which was an absolute blessing. Your family was also into philanthropy too, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, we were involved and in, in, you know, still are in a number of different, uh, I guess you'd say, projects around the world. We work with humanitarian uh, agencies. We work with um, evangelistic and mission-oriented agencies, a, a lot of different projects in different, different countries. Um, and that's been a real blessing to us. And that was, I was mentioning there before about the giving and it helps to heal your heart uh, as you get involved in that process, helps to heal that selfishness. So tell me now what happened when you, when you came to this point of realisation and you had the motivation to write the book and so forth. How did you resolve the issues? Are there, are, and are they still issues? Do you still have to struggle with them or are they, or are they resolved in a, in a permanent sense? Uh, no, it's still a struggle, no, no question, but not necessarily with those same issues that I had back then. Uh, I don't have a lot of the interest in, uh, I guess, the affluence and the affluence lifestyle that I, that I was trying so hard to get back then, trying to live the dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have those, those challenges anymore. But, you know, there, there's always something in life. There's no, I don't think it's a, there's any such thing as a, a clean sweep, a permanent cure where from today onwards... No worries, me and God, we're like this, you know, and, and we're just going to stay like that forever and there's nothing Satan or anyone can do about it. We're, it's, it's a daily battle. So yeah. what would you say to a, a family, a Christian family perhaps, yeah. out there where there is affluence and there, is, uh, there are signs that things are starting to fall apart because of that? Mm. It really comes back to getting that relationship back with God. Uh, because you can do a lot of uh, things. You can say, oh, well, we're going to take the kids on a mission trip and hopefully that'll stop them being so selfish, you know, or, or that sort of thing. But it's, and that can work sometimes. You know, these are things that, I'm not saying don't do them. I'm saying, yeah, absolutely go for it. But ultimately, it's about a change of heart. We've got to have that change of heart. And uh, if, if we don't have that, the rest is, you know, tinsel. Yeah. So how do, we, how do we strike that balance between legitimately caring for ourselves? We have to care for ourselves. Absolutely. We have to provide for our families. How do we strike that balance between caring for ourselves and our families and the needs of those around us? Mm. Yeah, it's a, I guess you could say it's a delicate balance, but at the same time, it comes to an understanding of, of a difference between wants and needs. You know, I often, I often joke, one of my boys or somebody will say, oh, I need this, Dad. I need, need a new pair of basketball shoes. And I say, is that need with an N or a W? Yeah. <laughs> is it a need or a want? You know, what are, we, what are we talking about here? And once we get that perspective more and more into place and realize that just because you can afford something doesn't mean that it's a christ like thing to do to go and get it. In fact, it was John Wesley, you know, one of the guys I was talking about before, who said the most diabolical word in the English language, the word that he hated more than any other word, was the word afford. Because he saw Christians who should have been, in, in his own words, he said, Christians should work as hard as they can to earn as much as they can. And we're good at that. That's the old Protestant work ethic. But then he goes on and he says, in order to spend as little as they can, in order to give all that they can. You know, and that's that halfway through that saying of his is where this cavern is, where trying to get across from working hard and, and earning well to actually not spending it on yourself and giving it away is a real challenge. And so we've got to, we've got to identify what's a real need and what's just a want. What, what, what about my, my, the car I drive, the house I have, the holidays I go on? How much of that is about what I really need and how much of that is just about showing other people that I can afford it, 
mm. uh, and trying to get that balance. You know, I always tell people drive a car that's as, as old as your ego can afford. <laughs> <laughs> what about the life of Christ? What, what does the life of Christ tell us? I mean, he's the great exemplar for Christianity. Mm. What does his life tell us about acquisition and happiness and so forth? Yeah, yeah, it's the, it's the ultimate example, isn't it? It's uh, here, here was a, a being who is equal with God, reigning in heavens, in heaven, over the entire universe, but chose to humble himself, to come down here, to live amongst us, to be ridiculed and spat on and beaten and crucified because he loved us so much. Yeah, that's that. To, to me, that is just a. It, it's a an earth shattering concept because it shows me how I'm meant to live. And when I then next go to the shop or plan my next holiday or my next acquisition or whatever it is, and I know in my mind that there are people in need, and I look at the life of Christ. I end up buying something very different to what I might have thought I was going to buy in the first place, or you know. So, it's a, it's it really is life changing. Once once I began to understand Christ's example in this area of of choosing to serve others ahead of yourself, uh, that's you know really started to change things. Well, he had his his priorities were that if you were serving, that that was the avenue to greatness. It wasn't mm. lifting yourself up above above others. Yeah. And I'm just wondering whether this has something to do, this inversion has something to do with what's happening in our own society where those principles of putting others first seem to be um, not really at the essence or the centre of our civilization, mm. our Western civilization, which is very acquisitive yeah. in, in its habits. Yes. And so sometimes there's a veneer of Christianity in our society, mm. but the essence really is the economy is king, that everything runs around the economy and yeah. and so forth. And I'm not decrying the fact that we need to have a, a prosperous economy to do to, to do good things mm. and to have and to have good lives. Yeah. But it seems to me that sometimes we place it in a position that actually works against us mm. and and our quality of life and our spirituality. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now if, if people wanted to um, access you, wanted to talk with you, wanted to access your services, wanted you to have a come and come and speak to them or to a group that they're functioning with, how do they contact you? Yeah, look, the easiest way is just to jump on Google. Good old Uncle Google, he knows everything. You know? <laughs> so, so if they just Google Julian Archer Faith versus Finance, that'll take them straight to the web page and uh, all contact details are on there. I noticed when I just checked your website out, your website out, you had quite a number of things that people could take off the website as well. Yes. They yeah. just wanted to come in, have a look, and, and see what sorts of things that they could um, take away from it. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of resources on there. There's video clips where I, I talk through different things. Uh, there's small group discussion guides if people want to open this up, this conversation up amongst their friends or, or you know some other community group. Uh, and, of course, the book is on there as well if people want it as a free audio book download to listen to in the car mm-hmm. or, or as a PDF to look at on their computer. That's all there as well. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Julian about his early life and experiences. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 
0429733456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr. Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest today is Mr. Julian Archer. We've been talking about Julian's book, Help, I've Been Blessed, and his global ministry, Faith Versus Finance. In this part of the program, I'll be talking with Julian about his early life and experiences. Julian, where were you born and where did you grow up? Born in Brisbane, yeah, and uh, was there until I was four or five years old. And then we moved out to the Lockyer Valley, so a little bit west of Brisbane, about an hour west, and uh, grew up a very... A footloose existence uh, as hippies out in the bush there. Yeah, very uh, very much a barefoot existence. Uh, it was a great childhood. That must have been a pretty idyllic time in the sort of 1970s. Yeah, yeah. We were probably a little bit late to be hippies when we were really. It was the 1960s, I think, we were supposed to be hippies. But, uh, yeah, mum and dad were busy in the 60s with, uh, with business, so uh, we did that. And I don't know, it was idyllic for my sister and I, you know, growing up out there in the bush, and it was just fantastic. So you only have one sister? Yeah, a brother came along much later, okay. uh, but yeah, my sister and I. And then, but for mum and dad, I think it was probably pretty stressful because yeah, they were trying to live off the land and and grow your own food and and all of that sort of thing, build your own house. Uh, and I don't think that's the easiest lifestyle. No. <laughs> what were the sorts of things you liked to do as a kid? I used to love just going off into the bush on my own, and we we had a little property about thirty acres, and either side were massive cattle properties, you know, two and three thousand acre properties there. And I'd go off and there were caves in the hills and I'd go and be a bush ranger or whatever I had to be on that day, you know, <laughs> have a bit of fun and, and let the imagination run wild. And I think I read a story about you tracking down a snake that nearly bit you. Would you like to tell us that story? Yeah, when I was uh, probably about 10 or 11, I, I was quite into snakes. I, I loved snakes and I, I wanted to be a herpetologist, which was the biggest word I knew at the time and probably still the biggest one I know. But that's about a person who, you know, breeds snakes and, and I... Uh, Whenever Dad would find a carpet snake outside, he'd bring it in for me to play with and green tree snakes and that sort of thing. And one day I was riding my push bike with my mates along a dirt road and there was a big green tree snake going across the road. It was, it was about six foot long. It was about as big as they get. And so I thought, oh, here's my chance to show my bravado. And I jumped off my bike and ran forward and to catch this snake. And uh, the, the snake, obviously, you know, its instincts kicked in and it took off pretty fast and I chased it across one side of the road and back across the road and under a bush and then back across the road again and my mates are laughing and pointing and, you know, screaming and having a great time. And this snake's getting pretty angry. And when a green snake gets angry, it, it uh, shows its blue scales. So you can tell when a green snake is angry because it goes a bit of a bluey colour. It stretches out. And uh, it was going up this cutting on the side of the road and I was scrambling along after it all scratched and it was just going over the top of the cutting and I knew that as it, if it got over the top of the cutting, it was gone because it was pretty fast. And so I just I lurched up and grabbed it by the tail and then scrambled up and got up on top with it and then I picked it up as high as I could to show my mates, hey, you know, this is all great. And right at that moment, this green tree snake, which is a very, very agile reptile, just reared up 
and because of course I was about four feet high and it was six feet long, so it, it, it had the advantage. And I can still to this day picture the mouth of this snake coming directly at my face, completely open. And I can still see down its throat with these sort of red and blue and purple, I guess, flesh and veins and things going down its throat. And it was coming right for my nose. <laughs> and as it, when it was about uh, probably a foot away from my nose, I just pulled off to one side, flicked my hand the other way, and we never did meet again. But uh, to this day, I, I can still remember that. It was one of those things. And I've actually been a bit snake shy ever since because I, I have been bitten by, by non-venomous snakes a few times. And, and I'm at a point now where I'm going, no, look, you, you're okay. You, just, you do your thing, I'll do mine. <laughs> what about the time that you um, were going to drape? What was that, a carpet snake over your sister while she was doing her homework? Yeah, yeah. That, we had a lot of fun as kids. And yeah, I used to hide in my sister's room and wet my hand at, at night time and put it on the light switch so that when she walked down the hall and reached her hand around to switch the light on, she just got this wet hand. <laughs> and anyway, so one day Dad gave me a carpet snake. It was a hot summer's night, and this, this one was pretty awake. And I thought, oh, I'll take it in and drape it over her, uh, down over her shoulder while she's studying and uh, you know, give her a bit of a wake-up. And I never got that far because it bit me before I, before I got it in there. <laughs> uh, Tell me about your parents. Great people. Generosity in human form. They're just uh, wonderful, wonderful people. And uh, they've had a, a long, long journey through life. And, uh, but they're, they're serial entrepreneurs. Uh, they're always into something new, always wanting to try something new, push the envelope a bit, uh, live on the edge of, of I guess, society in a lot of ways. They, they're wanting to try new, new businesses, new products, new uh, mission techniques, evangelistic techniques, humanitarian service techniques. They're just wanting to keep pushing those boundaries. And uh, But, yeah, a couple of fantastic people. As you're growing up in the family, what sorts of um, values did you pick up from your parents? Yeah, it, it, it changed. Uh, in the early days, I think, you know, when I was younger, it was very much work, work, work. Uh, they had, I mean, there was a point, they were only 24 years old and they were running five businesses that they had started from scratch. You know, gymnasiums and health food stores and refrigeration business and all sorts of different things. Uh, so very early on, they were working hard. And so I guess I got that early on in life. Uh, but then as, and, and, and it was work hard for yourself. That was, the, that was the model back then. But then as we came through life and became Christians, we, that changed. And they taught me that actually, yeah, work hard, keep working hard, but do it for God, do it for other people. And uh, so that was a big change. So when did Christianity enter your family? About 1976. So I was about seven years old. Uh, and it was sort of, it came in over that next few years, sort of late 70s, I guess you would say. So initially your family was very much into acquisition for the family. It's mm. all, coming, all coming their way. Mm. And so there was a change then as they became Christian then they started to look at money in a different way. Mm. Did, you, did you sense that change? Did you see that change in them? Yeah, very much so because it, uh, yeah, it, the businesses started to become about, uh, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were a means to an end. The end was, the, the goal was to be able to tell other people about Jesus and the businesses supplied the finances to do that. Uh, whether whether mum and dad were doing that themselves by going out and, and being involved in various uh, mission-style projects uh, or whether they were supporting others to do that. 
Uh, and it was very clear. You know, I would come to Dad when we were running our, some of our bigger businesses, which, you, you know, some of them were offices in other countries and exporting to 25 countries around the world. And, and I would try and give him a financial report uh, of how things were going. And if I gave him more than about an A4 page of numbers per year, he'd be like, oh, don't waste my time, Julian. You know, this <laughs> he just had no interest in money. It, it was just, it was such a phenomenal turnaround from, I guess, earlier days in business to the point where he literally had no interest in money. It was, uh, it was, it was an eye open. This was a guy who, you know, had he advertised, uh, you know, mum and dad, had they advertised the, their assets, they could have made it onto some of the rich lists and stuff in, in you know, in our state and that sort of thing. And he just had no interest. And to this day, he has no interest in money other than how can I use this money to serve God? Yeah. So the impact of religion was quite profound on their attitudes to, to money mm. in the family. Yeah. What about your own personal conversion and experience? Yeah, as a, I, uh, when we became in, into the church, so going back to 1976, you know, about seven years old, and we, we became Christians, learned about about God and and that changed a lot of things in our family. So it wasn't just about money. It was there was I won't go into all the details, but the whole lot of different aspects in the family that uh, that changed uh, at that time. Uh, I then learnt more and more through my early teen years uh, into my teenage years, and finally came to a point of conversion when I was about eighteen, uh, and I finally realised that yeah, I realised what God had done for me, what Jesus had done for me. I, I began to understand, uh, I guess in a very limited way, but I began to understand the conflict that is going on between good and evil uh, at a universal level. Uh, and I chose which side of that I wanted to be on. I wanted to be on Jesus' side because of what he'd, he'd done for me. Uh, but then from there, uh, I, I, I guess I lost that first love as, as businesses went crazy and, and uh, I got distracted in a lot of different Ways I lost that relationship, not completely, but it it was certainly diminished and weakened. So, what were your ambitions around this time? Did you want to go into business? Uh, I know that you actually went back to study. Yeah, you went to study. Yes. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about that time of transition. Yeah, I did a uh, I did a teaching degree. Uh, I wanted to be uh, a high school teacher. I wanted to work with young people uh, and and teach them. Uh, about Christianity and that, that sort of thing in their lives because it, it had changed so much in our family, changed our family so much. I wanted to share that. Uh, but I graduated from a teaching degree on a Sunday, went back into business on the Monday. And so uh, as much as I loved being in the classroom when I was learning how to teach, uh, business drew me back. And, and I believe that God, God wanted me there. That was where he wanted me to be a businessman, uh, more so than a teacher. And, and looking back, I can see that clearly now. Um, but it was very distracting. Where did you meet Melinda, your wife? In uh, in Mwollomba, yeah, North New South Wales. So uh, tell me a bit about that. Yeah, oh, look, I uh, my my dad always said to me, Julian, when you're looking for a wife, don't go to the cities because, son, you can't afford those girls. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, went, uh, I I sort of understood what he meant, but I thought, oh yeah, whatever. So I went bush, you know, I went out in the country looking for girls and and. Uh, so I ended up in Mwollombar and I saw Melinda and I, that was it. I knew. Without having even spoken to her or anything, as soon as I saw her, I said, that's the girl. And my mate knew her. And I said to him, I said, who's that? 
and uh, and how old is she? <laughs> I was about 21, and I I I I was thinking in my head, if she's 17 or more, I'm going for it. <laughs> and he said, she's 17, and don't even think about it. She's my boss's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I ignored him, and uh, it was yeah beautiful relationship began, and uh, to this day we just have an absolutely fantastic marriage. Mm. Yeah. Tell me about your boys. Two great guys, uh, fourteen and sixteen. Uh, the youngest one is six foot one. He's he's taller than me, uh, and he likes to remind me of that on a pretty regular basis. <laughs> Uh, my oldest boy, Ethan, is a very uh, talented artist and he's very much – we keep telling him he was born in the wrong century because when, when other guys are going out and buying iPads and all the latest technology, he'll save up and go out and buy a 100-year-old typewriter that he can do up and try and you know, type his letters and assignments on this old typewriter. And, uh, yeah, so he's an artist, a calligrapher and all that sort of thing, loves museums. And, uh, whereas my youngest boy, he's the social one. He just gets out there. He loves nature. Loves being outside. Uh, so the guys are chalk and cheese, but man, they're just both great guys, and uh, and I've got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of hope for how God can work with them in their lives just to serve Him. What about Melinda? She's a teacher, isn't she? Yeah, teacher again by degree, but she hasn't actually taught a whole lot. She taught last year uh, because uh, the local school needed someone to fill in after somebody else had left. Uh, but she's been really blessed to be able to be a mum. Uh, to our boys and, and a fantastic wife and uh, she's just one of those ladies that you know in the Bible there's a, a chapter called Proverbs 31 and it talks about this ultimate lady <laughs> and that's, that's Melinda I tell her that all the time and uh, so that's just been a huge blessing in our family she's, she's, the, she's the rock and I, know, I think the dad's supposed to be the rock but in our family Melinda is the rock Now what was the philosophy that underpinned the beginning of your marriage? Yeah, look, we uh, we were in a meeting once and there was a guy there who was about 80 years old. And we, we didn't know all this at the time. We spoke to him later on, but he was about 80 years old. And he had lost his wife when he was 30 in, a, in an accident. And so for the last 50 years, he had uh, not, not remarried. Uh, he had just uh, lived a, a life of service. He was very much involved in mission. Uh, he, he only passed away a few years ago at 98 years of, of age. But... Up the front, the speaker said, who knows what love is? And immediately this guy's hand shot up. And it was just so fast. I mean, if someone says to me, what's love? Back then I would have gone, oh, I don't know, or let me think about this. Uh, you know, it's one of those really deep philosophical questions and there's been reams of information written on it. This guy's hand shot up and he said, love is a keen desire to ensure the happiness of another person. Hmm. And we were both sitting there. We weren't even married at the time. We were about to get married. And we looked at each other and we thought, that's pretty simple. Love is a keen desire to ensure the happiness of another person. And that has been the principle of our marriage. So basically, from a marriage point of view, I spend my days trying to keep Melinda happy. She spends her days trying to keep me happy. And it's fantastic. <laughs> so <laughs> your philosophy has never changed. Hasn't changed. right? Yeah, I think we've been married. Oh, gee, I'm getting in trouble for not remembering exactly how long, but uh, over 20 years. <laughs> and, uh, and we still have that philosophy, and, and we're really thankful to that guy for sharing it. What gives you the most satisfaction in your life? Sharing, sharing, I mean, it depends as you go through life, but right at the moment it's sharing the message that God has placed on my heart, and that is the, the message about the impact that affluence has on a person's spirituality. And, uh, and I just love it. I travel all over the place, uh, often with the family, 
and we share that ministry together. So you're not you're not employed. You're just simply working with your um, your ministry at this stage. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and spending a lot of time with the boys. That's the, this age of life. They're 14 and 16 years old, and I, I, I come across guys who older guys whose kids have left home, and they all say to me, "I wish I'd spent more time with my kids. I wish they hadn't grown up so fast." And I guess I've been blessed. I'm at a point in life where I can actually just stop and spend time with the kids. And so we do a lot of that, and we, we have a lot of fun uh, spending time together. Now, I guess if I ask this question, you might give me an answer around money and so forth. But what have you really learned from your life that you think everyone needs to know? One essential piece of knowledge or learning from your life that you think everyone really could benefit from knowing? Yeah. Look, if, if there's only one, there's, only, there's really only one, one piece of advice. Looking back on my life... And it's the, still a work in progress, yeah, absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely, really? yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I hope I'm not even halfway. <laughs> I'm having a quarter-life crisis, you know. <laughs> no, uh, if, if there's only one, one thing uh, to put it down to in my life, it's get to know Jesus because the change that came about in our, in our family, uh, in, in my life personally, in the peace that that brought to my life, uh, in, in so many other different aspects of life and lifestyle and relationships, uh, financial things, you know, just so many different ways. Uh, that's it. That is at the core of all of it. And so th- there's other things I've learned. But ultimately, if I could give somebody that one piece of advice, get to know Jesus. He is enough for any any problem, any issue that a person has. He has the answer when when we dig deep and seek for it. Mm. Do you have a favourite passage of scripture? I, I do. It, it, it's changed over over the years. You know, as we go through the seasons of life, we have different things, and the Bible speaks to can speak to anybody at any stage of life. For me at the moment, my favorite one is actually hidden away in a place that people rarely look. It's in, in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. And it says in there that God will, if we let him, if we ask him, he will give us a new heart. He will take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And basically that's a heart that will love other people. It's a heart that is filled with generosity. It's a heart that doesn't look out for itself as number one anymore, but looks out for other people and, and what their needs are. So for me, at, that, at this season of life, uh, you know, because I, I went through a, a season where I really needed a new heart. <laughs> and I guess I've, I've, I've had a heart attack, not a literal one, but I guess it's like a person who's just had a quadruple bypass there. You say, what's your favourite favorite operation you've ever had? Uh, well, it's the one that gave me new life. <laughs> and for me, it's the new heart. It's mm. given me a new life. Mm. I guess that's uh, a really important verse, isn't it? Because uh, we see so much hatred and destruction and variance, dissension in our world, that if we could just simply change the hearts of people so that they were looking out for other people and not just out for themselves or for their own movements or interests and so forth, mm. then we'd have a much happier much happier world. Mm, absolutely. And I'm just wondering now whether you would like to close our conversation today with a prayer. And maybe with a specific reference for those people who had to struggle with these issues that we've talked about today. Mm, sure. 
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning with grateful hearts. Lord, you have, uh, you've, you've blessed us. You've, in, in my own personal life, Lord, you have taken me from, from darkness to light, and I thank you for that. And Lord, I just pray that if there are other people out there at this time who are struggling in the darkness of, of broken relationships or, or financial struggles or health problems, whatever it is, and they're in that dark place, Lord, I just pray that you will touch them and that you will give them that glimmer of light, that glimmer of hope, and that they will then walk through that door and see the, the beauty that you have prepared for them, that they'll find ways to draw nearer to you and to get to know you better, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Julian. Lovely to talk with you today. Thanks, Barry. And all the best for the future. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you've been listening to Life Learnings. Remember to tune in again next time as I speak with another fascinating guest. Bye for now, and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.
That was Jennifer LaMountain and You Thought of Us 